The scripture reading for this evening will be 1 Timothy chapter 6, and it will be verses 6 through 10. 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 10. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmless desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. Good evening. <laughs> wasn't ready for that. I got a howdy back. I uh, wasn't ready for howdy, but it's good to see you. Howdy, whoever said that. It's good. Glad to have you back tonight. It's good to see you here. We are continuing our thoughts this morning uh, uh, by way of our second half of our sermon. We'll talk about three more categories of which we can concern ourselves with this year as we move forward into the new year. And um, just for the record, let me say that my thoughts about God's people was confirmed again this morning. That is, I think God's people are the greatest people on the planet. And I think whenever God's people hear something that's true, even for themselves, that is challenging, they will take up the challenge and they will often say, yeah, that's me. I need to work on that, which is what I got this morning, coincidentally, over and over and over again. So thank you for that. And you're receiving the sermon in the way it's intended as encouragement, which is what I heard this morning repeatedly. And I say that because of the three things we'll talk about tonight. <laughs> encouragement, that's what it is. So we talked this morning about personal responsibility. You can, and you've been empowered to do so by the God of heaven. Uh, we talked about spiritual development. The exhortation is make a plan. You can do this. You can grow your faith. You can learn the Bible. You can draw closer to God. You can be what he wants us to be. You can do that. And then we talked about perspective, improving our outlook. And I don't know, I'm not assuming that you have a poor outlook. It's just that the world being what it is, sometimes we can all kind of veer toward negativity and we can all kind of gear toward and direct ourselves toward pessimism and woe is me and woe is the world and that kind of thinking. I'm just going to encourage us if that's the case, uh, let's not do that. We have so much more uh, with God and Christ this evening, we'll talk about three more things to consider, and so we'll jump right in. And what we had read in the scripture is actually the first one. It's money, point number four. That is, we should respect it and use it properly. It is a tool. It doesn't have feelings. It has no mind, no morals. But given the amount of scripture that talks about it, given how much God emphasizes it, it's clear that he intends for us to use it properly. In Scripture, there are proverbs about money. There are parables about money. In fact, I've heard this said, I don't know, I haven't verified or checked, but I've heard it on more than one occasion from gospel preachers that there is more said by the Lord about money than about heaven. I've never really run that down to check. I don't know that that's true, but gospel preachers generally tell the truth. And so they've said that. I've heard that. Now they must be right. I trust that they have studied that. At any rate, the Bible says so much about the subject. There are warnings about it. Luke chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. Beware of covetousness, Jesus says, for man's life does not consist in the abundance of the things which he possesses. There are people stealing it, John chapter 12 and verse number 6, Judas stole from the bag. There are people loving it. We were just exhorted here to learn to be content 
Godliness with contentment is great gain, but they that love money, the love of money is the root of all evil. Not money. Please read that properly. Some have concluded, well, money is evil. No, it's not. The love of money is what's condemned, not money. People lose their souls over money. There is a man, you read about him in Luke chapter 12, verses 15 to 20. In fact, it's right after the words of Jesus about covetousness that he gives the parable about a man who tore down barns to build bigger barns to hoard his money. The man ultimately cost him his soul. Then there's people sharing money. Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4, the early church was exceedingly benevolent. They sold their houses, they sold their lands to give. That's money. People hoarded it, however. Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, Ananias and Sapphira. You read those passages, and sometimes people missing the emphasis of personal responsibility, even with money, they almost in a cavalier fashion wave their hand and say, well, it all belongs to God. I suppose that's true in that God gives us the ability to make money, and everything ultimately belongs to the Lord. Psalm 50 the cattle on a thousand hills, it's all his. And if he had a need, he wouldn't ask us. But that doesn't tell the whole truth about money. You listen to what Peter says to Ananias and Sapphira. And they say to them, while it was it, the land and you had it, you had the possession of the land, he says, it was yours. You, you didn't have to sell that land. That land belonged to you. That's what he says to them. It was yours. Now, when you converted that land to money, he says, that too was yours. It was yours. You could have done whatever you wanted to do with that. It was in your possession. It belonged to you. And you and I talk about stewardship. The whole point of that is it's yours. You can't just wave your hand at it and say it all belongs to God. No. The truth is it's yours. And the way and the reason God is going to judge is because he's going to see what we do with that which belongs to us. Ananias and Sapphira, you didn't have to sell the land. It was yours. Ananias and Sapphira, once you sold the land, the money was yours. You didn't have to lie. You actually didn't have to give it, but you did, and you lied. But it was yours. The money is ours, and God has blessed us with the ability to make it, and now he is watching us use it. People lose their soul over it. Some hoarded it. People are being forgiven debt in the Bible, Matthew chapter 18. The man who had two debtors, he forgave him because he couldn't pay it back. Our hearts, Jesus teaches, are revealed by our treatment of money. That's Matthew 6, 19 to 25. Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon the earth where moth and rust doth corrupt and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust do not corrupt and thieves do not break through and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. How does the Lord know that? He sees the way we treat money. He determines our heart by that. Our inability to serve God and mammon, Jesus says, you cannot serve God and mammon. You will love the one and hate the other, but you cannot serve both. Paul condemns covetousness in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. He says it is idolatry. If you worship money, bow the knee to money, love it to the point of making your God, then you are an idolatrous teaching. 
the Bible teaches us to save up for our children's children, Proverbs 13, 22. We give to support the cause of God and His work. God gave. That's how the Scripture talks about God, as being a giver. God gives. Even with reference to Jesus, the Bible couches it in those terms. God so loved the world that He gave. To the Corinthians, Paul would write, thanks be to God for His unspeakable gift. Jesus walks the earth and gives. That's how the Bible describes it. It describes Him as being rich and becoming poor for our sakes. Acts chapter 20 and verse 35 says of our Lord that He taught, it's more blessed to give than to receive. The early church gave. Here's the exhortation, take inventory, examine your giving. Where would you start? The Macedonians would be a good place to look. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, when Paul talks about the Macedonian brethren, he holds them up as a model, as an example. He says they gave beyond their means because they first gave themselves. He said they gave out of their deep poverty. They begged us to participate in this grace also. A couple of more thoughts regarding money. Carelessness is condemned. Wastefulness is condemned. Lacking self-control is condemned. Loving it is condemned. There is a principle our Lord teaches. In Luke chapter 16, beginning in verse number 10, Jesus says this, He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. And he that is unjust in the least is unjust also in much. If therefore ye have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to you the true riches? And if ye have been unfaithful in that which is another man's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters. He will either hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. What's the principle? Jesus spells it out effectively in these words. Faithful in little, faithful in much. Unfaithful in little, unfaithful in much. And if unfaithful in little, no one would give you that which is much. If we're unfaithful with the unrighteous mammon, the context is money. Who will give us the true riches? Heaven. If we can't be trusted with that which belongs to another, stewardship, then who will give us your own? That's what the Lord is saying. There is in 1 John chapter 3, or first, I'm sorry, 3 John chapter 1, John writing to Gaius says this in verse number 1 and verse number 2. He says, the elder unto the well-beloved Gaius, whom I love in the truth. Here's his prayer for Gaius. Beloved, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health even as thy soul prospers. It seems that John is praying for Gaius, number one, to prosper and be in health as his soul prospers. In other words, it seems to be the case that the spiritual maturation, as it is fitting and grows and matures, I hope you prosper in like manner so that the soul could handle the money properly and use it. I hope as your soul grows, you prosper. Seems like a very good prayer because not everybody needs more money. I know it may seem like, well, that's the thing. If I got more money, if I got more money, boy, that would be great. And maybe in some ways it would. But in James chapter 4, there are those seeking money with the wrong intentions. 
James says you lust and you cannot obtain, you fight and devour, yet you have not because you have not. And he says when you do ask, you ask amiss that you may consume it upon your own lust. There are some individuals that simply don't need more money. James has already spelled out, what would you do with it? Well, you just consume it on your own lust. Wouldn't think about God, wouldn't think about others. You would just get more and more and more and consume it and consume it and consume it. James says that wouldn't help you. Then there are those that we talked about here in 1 Timothy chapter 6, where it would be better if they didn't get money, because if they did, Paul says, those that desire to be rich, if they, they crave to be rich, they long to be rich, he says they've fallen into many hurtful snares and drowned in destruction and perdition, and they often leave the faith as a result of it. In fact, chapter 6 and verse 17, he says, charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded nor trust in the uncertainty of riches. What should we do then? Well, we should learn about money. The Bible says too much about it for it to be insignificant. We should learn about it. Maybe read books about it. Learn about the stock market. I don't know. Learn about business. Make a plan. Get help if necessary. But there is too much in the Bible to ignore its emphasis on the proper use of money. Sometimes you come from families and they never did that. And so you might be inclined to say, well, my family never knew about money. Well, you can learn. You could learn about money and its usefulness. One may say, we never had it. Well, you can. You could be the one to start the family down the road of learning the proper uses of money. We shouldn't be slaves to money. Money should work for us. It is a tool and should be used properly by God's people. Young people, it's never too long, too early to start. And old people, it's never too late to learn. And so wherever you find yourself, as you are doing your own self-examination, take inventory of your money and your financial circumstances as it relates to you and to your God. Number two or number five, depending on how you're counting. <laughs> our health. Now, if you took the money as encouragement, which I hope you did, then I hope you'll take the health as the same way. God wants us to use our minds, bodies, and souls in his service. He wants to be glorified in us so that the world through us can find him, Matthew 5, 13 to 16. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, in verse number 20, the Bible actually says that we belong to God, body and soul that we have been bought with a price, and therefore we should glorify God in our bodies and in our spirits. They both belong to him. Part of that involves controlling the things we can control. And a part of that is, to some degree, our health. Now, we cannot have in the Lord's church off-limit subjects especially if those subjects are touched on in Scripture. And our bodies and our souls and our minds and our being is touched on in Scripture. And so let me say very quickly, yes, there were dietary restrictions in the Old Testament for God's people. No, there are no dietary restrictions for God's people in the New Testament. And no one should ever read the Old Testament and try to bind it on God's New Testament people. 
Christ fulfilled the old law. In fact, Christ is the end of the law. Christ brought a new covenant, and the new covenant is clear. There are no dietary restrictions upon God's people. You could read Acts chapter 10 and listen to God talk to Peter and 11, or Romans 14 and verse number 14, 1 Timothy 4, 1 to 5, and Colossians chapter 2. So please understand, that's not what I'm talking about. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 20 says what? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own. You are bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. So let me emphasize very quickly, the issue is not dietary restrictions or you have to eat a certain way. That is not the point. The point is self-control. And it is challenging. Part of the blessings of prosperity is challenge. And there are challenges to controlling ourselves in this environment and in this context. Some of those challenges are, well, they're just practical in nature. They include access. Have you noticed how much food is available? The access to it is just almost limitless. You can eat anything you want to, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, and nobody will say anything to you. In fact, most people will be, eat with you and be very glad about the meal. There is no issue. The access alone makes it challenging. But then there's the amount. Have you seen the portions? You can eat on one plate generally two or three days if you're so inclined. Two or three meals on one plate. We are hardly the place where you say that's not enough. No, there's plenty. That's not the issue. It's a challenge, but it's not the issue. And then thirdly, there's the amazing taste. Are you kidding have you tasted the good stuff that we can eat? There's salt, there's sweet, there's sour, you name it, we have it. These become challenges. While they're great blessings, they become challenges. You add to that our medical advances. We can treat things. We can treat the very diseases sometimes that we create. We have medicines, we have surgeries, we have the ability to treat and continue. The desire to do badly in this arena and then take medication and continue is a huge temptation for some. Add to that, it's difficult. If you think reading the Bible in 30 days is challenging, try changing and exercising self-control in food. If you want a challenge, take that one on and you will see this is difficult stuff. Add to that that people are always touting quick fixes. Do this, do that. There's confusion about it. You ask somebody, what is it that what I should do to be healthy? They'll have a whole thing for you. Turn this direction, ask another person, it'll be the exact opposite. And everywhere in between, somebody knows something about what you need to do. It's so much confusion about it that even when you try, you just leave with a headache trying to figure out what to do. Then there's money that's involved, further complicating the matter. And then there's the last two or three years of being locked inside of the house. You know how close the kitchen is to the television. Do you have any idea? <laughs> and do you have any idea when you're just locked inside what a challenge it would be? Remember, personal responsibility, accountability, spiritual development, perspective. Paul's words in Philippians 4 is, I can through Christ, and you can. 
And again, I'm not touting that you do A, B, C. I'm not. Please don't hear me say that because I'm not. If this is in any way a struggle for you and something you need to look into, then you've got to change your mind about this just like you do and I do about everything else. Every change, every important, every victory, every improvement begins in the mind. Spiritual growth, money, health, all begins in the mind. We have to change our minds about the thing with which we're struggling. I need to ask myself, what do I actually think about money? What do I actually think about food? Somebody will say, well, willpower, you just try real hard. If you've ever done that, you know mm, that's not the way. Willpower without changing our mind will lead us to inevitable failure. That's it and that's all. You ever wonder why some people don't make it five days into the new year? Why are you so fed up with, with New Year's resolutions? You hear people say, I don't believe in resolutions. I try and try and try. By the fifth day, I'm done, and now it's a joke. You know, you, it's, it's, it's the middle of January, and everybody's done. Well, why would we fail? It's because we haven't changed our mind about the thing we're trying to change. And if we don't change our minds about it, well, inevitably, our willpower is going to give way for all of the reasons we've already described. Changed minds come from learning the truth. John 8, 31, 32, Jesus said we can know the truth. Ephesians 4, 17 to 32, we can know the truth. There is, in some sense, practically speaking, just like money is a tool, so too food is a tool. It does something. There is some reason for it. It provides us something. What is that? And maybe I could get back to that and began to work from there. Here's what the Bible says in a couple of places. If you have found honey, eat only enough for you, lest you have your fill of it and vomit it. Proverbs 25, 16. Another passage says, it's not good to eat much honey, nor is it glorious to seek your own glory. A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. Paul may very well say it best in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse number 12. There the apostle Paul says, all things are lawful for me, but all things are not profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. He says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 23, and I would just ask you this. Would you examine your heart, your life, your mind, and see if something has mastered you? If indeed it is the case, I can't quit. Paul says, yes, it's lawful, but I can't be mastered by it. I can't allow something to master me and make me its slave other than Jesus. There's where the challenge is. Number six, marriage. It is God's creation, Genesis 2, 18 to 25. It is humanity's blessing. It is ultimately our choice. With very few instances in America, in fact, none that I know of personally, we don't arrange marriages, and you aren't forced to be in one. We choose each other. And as a rule, we choose each other as we are. 
I've yet to counsel anybody. I've yet to perform a ceremony where somebody read the vows and said, now, wait a minute, before we say these, I need a few caveats. Nobody ever says that. Everybody says, I'm in, all in, as this person is right now today. I'll take them. Give me all of them. I'll give them all of me. There are no caveats. There's no rules. There's no restrictions. They have me. I have them. We're all in. That's all I've ever done. That's all I've ever heard. How about you? And then we stand there and make vows. I stand before God and witnesses, and I vow. Every time we do that, we have the things we talked about this morning. There is personal responsibility to keep those vows. And you need not look for any more accountability than the one you made them to. We will hold each other accountable to those vows. We are in charge then of what we think and what we say, what we feel. And what we do then is based on those things. What do I think about my spouse? That'll be what I say. What do I feel about my spouse? That'll be what I do. They are individuals who have it in their mind that their normality makes everybody them. And so they kind of say things like, well, we would all do that. There are some instances, and sometimes there are thoughts that just jump into your mind. I will grant you that. But there are some instances in life where it might be the case that given a certain set of circumstances, yes, we might all respond the same way. Let me offer one. If everybody here went home tonight or on the way home found out our house is on fire, chances are good we'd all probably respond the same way. But marriage isn't like a house on fire. Our responses in marriage is not like that. Our responses in marriages come not from some objective thing where the house is on. No, our, our, our responses and our feelings often come from the way we are responding and interacting with each other. There are interpersonal relationships to which we are responding. Not some objective thing where the house is on fire and everybody responds. No, that's not the way it is in marriage. In marriage, you're doing what you want to do, and you're thinking what you want to think, and you're acting the way you want to act, and there's no guarantee that everybody would do it the same way. I could offer this as we move forward through the year, that when you listen, and I think we talked about this just briefly, when you listen to sermons being preached and you're listening to God's Word, and regardless of who is teaching or preaching it, please don't listen with the view that the first sentence with which you disagree, you listen with that intention, and then you argue in your mind why that can't be right. When you listen that way, generally speaking, you'll miss a lot of what's said. Tell you about an invitation I did many years ago in which I stood up and said something like, do you care what people think about you? Now, I appreciate the fact that there is a context in which we should. My point, though, was in another context, well, we shouldn't care. We shouldn't care what the world says about us. We should keep shining our light. We shouldn't care what other people say about us. We should keep following Jesus. That was the context. But when I said this, do you care what people think about you? I was met outside of the assembly by a brother who told me, hey, I disagree with what you said tonight. 
I said, yeah, what part will you disagree with? He said, I think you should care about what people think about you. I said, well, yeah, certain context. I did say that. I said, you didn't hear me say that? He said, no. I didn't hear you because I stopped listening the moment you said you shouldn't care about what people think. <laughs> Sometimes people listen to sermons and they listen to things like that. Listen, I'm begging you, please don't do that. It will often leave you in your present position, and if that position needs challenging and changing, you won't do it. Marriage is one of the greatest blessings from God we have. And like money, there is a great deal said about marriage. Marriage is held up as God's interaction with his church. Genesis 2 is perfected in Ephesians 5. And Christ is the example of how a husband is to treat his wife. You can't do better than that. The church is how a wife is to respond to and treat her husband. You can't do better than that. Our roles are defined and explained in Scripture. Passages like 1 Peter 3, 1 to 12, Titus 2, 1 to 5, Ephesians 5, 22 to 33, 1 Corinthians 7, and a host of other passages on the subject. Marriage is the birthplace of babies, the school where babies learn to be human, the place where children learn about the God who made them, the Christ who came to redeem them, the Spirit who revealed the book of humanity's existence, the only book written by God. The people who teach them about heaven and hell and God and all things that pertain to life and godliness. The place where God is glorified, extolled, honored, explained, and demonstrated. What is said to the world should never be said of Christians. I heard this said repeatedly, COVID ruined marriages. What a sad, sad, sad commentary on the world. You know, your marriage should not be ruined because you have to spend time with your spouse. <laughs> Marriages aren't ruined by COVID. They're ruined by sin. And the reality is Christians sometimes need to get the sin out of our marriages. And the way to get the sin out of your marriage is by getting the sin out of you. Remember personal responsibility to this marriage personal accountability, spiritual growth, proper perspective. In your marriage, let me ask you this, who's responsible for your words? In your marriage, who's responsible for your actions? Who's responsible for your forgiveness? Who would you like us to hold accountable for that? Who would you like God to judge in these matters? Our marriages are inevitably what we make them. My marriage is what I contribute to it. Am I following Christ's example? That's the person to emulate. Am I following the Spirit's teaching? That's the plan to follow. Am I seeking God's glory? That's the purpose of our action. What are you going to do in 2023? May I encourage that you do some self-examination? that you be empowered by your personal responsibility, that you be empowered to grow spiritually, to be transformed into the image of Christ, that you be empowered to change your perspective, 
And like Paul, use the expression, I can, I can, I can, through Christ, I can. But you be empowered to learn about money. Shouldn't you plan with it, use it properly, and prepare your future generations with it? You be empowered to take control of your health and to practice self-control, to be empowered to make your marriage the very best that you can. You want a great marriage? Get to work. If marriages could be great easily, everybody would have a great marriage. It's hard work to sacrifice. It's hard work to serve. It's hard work to say it's my fault. And sometimes it's hard work to apologize and say I'm sorry. But there's nobody else who can do that but you. Take the mind of Christ and follow Christ's example. God has this wonderful plan for families. Let me share with you and see if you could recognize this and what you think about such a family. Family that looks like this. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And you wives, see that you reverence your husbands. Children, obey your parents in the Lord and honor them. What kind of family is that? Isn't that just about the best as it could be? Do you have a part in that? You might want to read Colossians 3, and Ephesians 5, and Ephesians 6. What an opportunity we have. Sometimes people say the most wonderful things to you, and sure enough, that happened to me today. Now, I do want you all to know in advance, I'm not going to say everything that you say to me in the hallway. First of all, it's too much. I can't say it all. <laughs> Secondly, if you ever tell me, don't say this, I won't say that. But so far, nobody has said it, so I'm sharing. <laughs> but somebody met me out there and said, you know, this is the best day to do all the stuff you're talking about. He said, it's the first day of the year. It's the first day of the week, the first week of the month, the first month of the year. You can't get better than right I said, man, that's right. I wish I'd have thought of that. <laughs> it's the first, it's the first, it's the first. Why don't we all commit to making it the best? Not a member of the Lord's church this evening. Would you be? Would you allow the love of God and Jesus to motivate you and move you to come to him and submit to his good gospel? Believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. Repent, change your heart, change your mind. Confess the name of Jesus and be immersed in water. For the remission of your sins, be buried with him. Rise in walkness and newness of life. If you are a New Testament Christian and you've obeyed the gospel, I hope that these things will be of help and encouragement to you as we start the new year. And maybe all six don't apply. Maybe you saw in some of those, I'm doing pretty good here, but right there I can work. Then less. Get going on that one. Dare I say it? Let's grow and let's go. We can help you in any way. We invite you to come as we stand and as we sing.